welcome to the Yukon Internal Medicine Podcast. My name is Rithika Kampella, and I'm a PGY2 here at Yukon, and I'll be your host for today's episode. Before we begin, a quick disclaimer. All opinions and views expressed in our podcast are entirely the responsible of the authors and do not represent the opinions of anyone else in the Yukon Department of Medicine. The content presented is for educational purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice. That said, I'm thrilled to introduce our cardiology mini-series where we dive into some of the most clinically relevant conundrums you'll face and how to navigate them. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Erica Faircloth, a former chief of the program and a current second-year cardiology fellow at Hartford Hospital. While cross-covering as an intern or running rapids as a senior, a common call you'll get is to assess and manage tachycardia. Knowing how to identify certain rhythms, their etiologies, and most importantly, their treatments will leave you better prepared to tackle these clinical scenarios when you inevitably have to face them. That said, we'll be discussing the general approach to tachyarrhythmias. Hi, Rithika. Thank you so much for having me. This is a great topic and one that causes a lot of anxiety when covering overnight. It's a pretty large and hefty topic, so I'll try to cover some of the basics and at least a couple things that you should know on the fly. Thanks, Erica. With that said, I guess a good place to start would be to just discuss the general thought schema of tachycardia. So, you know, we typically know them as supraventricular or ventricular, um, but it's nice to know the breakdown of those in differentials. I think the first thing that you have to do in a situation is just take a second, take a nice deep breath. You can't treat the patient when your own heart rate is rivaling theirs, so just take a break. Next, look at the patient. A quick look at the patient can give you so much information about their stability. How are you going to manage the patient? Um, Are they agonally breathing? Are they awake? Are they diaphoretic? What are the vital signs? These are all really important things to, to focus on. Next, you should probably look at the telemetry strip and get a formal EKG if you can. Is the QRS narrow or less than 120 milliseconds? If it's wide, at that point, you really need to decide if you're dealing with VT, SVT with aberrancy, or SVT with pre-excitation. And there's a lot of tools that you can use to help distinguish this, including the Brugada criteria, but a lot of it can be only discovered in the EP lab, So, and it's pretty complicated. We'll just stick with the narrow complexes for today. In a broad sense, supraventricular tachycardia refers to a fast dysrhythmia that uses the cardiac tissue that's above the ventricle, which includes the atrium, the AV node, or the His bundle. And by this definition, it includes sinus tachycardia, AFib, flutter, but when you use the word SVT, it kind of implies that you're referring to the other paroxysmal SVTs. The most common are atrioventricular nodal reentrant tachycardias, or AVNRTs, which make up about 60 or so percent. AVRTs, which are atrioventricular reentrant tachycardias, and they make about 30%, and then atrial tachycardias, or AT, which is the other 10%. And these dysrhythmias can be caused by reentry, by triggered activity, or by increased automaticity. Definitely a lot of very important differentials you just walked us through, and that's a pretty good way to set up how to approach this in your mind. I guess the next big question would be how to effectively work these up, specific things to look for, and honestly, whether or not the vehicle maneuvers work for for some of these arrhythmias. So looking at the teletrend can be helpful. AVNRT and AVRT usually have a sudden increase in heart rate, whereas things like AT tend to have a more gradual ramping up of the heart rate. You can look for delta waves on the EKG, which can indicate pre-excitation, and this is important for treatment. This is not always present, though, so you have to look at different EKGs because it may, not, it may be concealed. Then you should look at the P waves. Make sure you look at their axis, what they look like. And sometimes this can be tough, but if you look at a prior EKG, it can be helpful to look at what the morphology looked like before. If the P waves are negative in the inferior leads, this means that the atrial activation is coming retrograde or going up backwards, basically. 
This suggests AVNRT, whereas the normal conduction pathway is more suggestive of AT. You can always look on telemetry, but you'll be a star if you print out the onset of the arrhythmia, if anything changes during the arrhythmia, and the termination of the arrhythmia, because it gives a lot of insight to what the underlying cause is. And you might see, let's say, like a PAC that leads into it, and that can give us a, a clue to what we're dealing with. So if you print that out, that's great. Next, looking at the relationship between the R wave and the P wave of the next complex. Quick and dirty, if the RP interval is greater than half of the RR interval, it's called a long RP tachycardia. And if it's less, it's a short RP tachycardia. There's a few more detailed nuances to this, but in general, you can go by this. A typical AVNRT is a regular short RP tachycardia, and heart rates usually range between 150 to 200 beats per minute. There is a slow and fast pathway involved, but the name, as the name suggests, it goes through the AV node or uses the AV node, and therefore AV nodal blocking maneuvers are actually quite effective in terminating the rhythm. Long term, these patients can sometimes get ablations with a success rate around 95%. So just keep that in mind when you're dealing with a patient with that, a referral might be indicated. AVRT can either be orthodromic with a narrow short RP or andromic, usually wide complex and a long RP. Bottom line is there's at least one accessory pathway, usually AV node of or the Hisperkinji system are involved, and they can also have a access, secondary accessory pathway. The other oddball short RP tachycardia is non-paroxysmal junctional tachycardia, which we won't get into. Long RP tachycardias include sinus tach, atypical AVNRT, atrial tachycardia, and permanent junctional reciprocating tachycardia. All right, brilliant. Now that we have a good sense of how to determine or, you know, distinguish what we're looking at when we open up the telestrip, the next question that we're going to have when alone on nights is, how do we manage this? I know that for certain antiarrhythmics or rate-controlling agents, there are definitely important contraindications for all of us to know. So if we could just run through that very quickly, and then the big question, to shock or not to shock, plus the duration of anticoagulation, but we'll get there. (laughs) Um, So now, really, we got to go back to the patient. Are they unstable? Meaning, are they hypotensive, hypoxic, extremely symptomatic? You might need to use electricity to synchronize cardiovert at bedside in this situation. And always have help when you do this. Don't do this by yourself. Make sure you give sedation if you can and run strips as you're doing it. And please don't forget to sink. (laughs) You can cause worse things to happen if you don't sink. If they're stable, you have a little more time to th- figure out like what you want to do. So just, again, take a deep breath. Everybody, sinus tachycardia is most of the time a physiologic response to something. And because of this, we don't treat it. We need to find out what the underlying cause is and treat that. And when you get a call about sinus tachycardia, you need to know why, why, why. Is it infection? Is it fever, blood loss, pain, PE, shock, breathing treatment that they just got? So you have to understand the why and treat that. If it's obviously a fib or flutter, you can use a beta blocker or calcium channel blocker if they don't have heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. And if you use a calcium channel blocker in reduced ejection fraction patients, they can decompensate. So if you don't know the EF, stick with the beta blocker. Severe COPDers, you need to be careful with the beta blockade, especially if they have active wheezing. Most people abide by this. I know that some cardiologists sometimes will still use a beta blocker, but for the most part, try to avoid it if they're wheezing. 
And honestly, amiodarone is not the greatest option, um, especially if you haven't, you don't know how long the patient's been in atrial fibrillation, because if it's potentially been greater than 48 hours or he or she hasn't been on anticoagulation, you can chemically convert the patient with amio and potentially cause a stroke. So it's an excellent medication for both atrial and ventricular arrhythmias, but there is a massive pile of side effects you have to worry about, long-term sequelae that they must be monitored. And again, we just talked about the stroke situation. And also, amio has a really long half-life, 58 days. So it stays in the system a long time. I do love digoxin, um, especially when the blood pressure is soft. I use this quite a lot. That being said, you do have to be careful when, when you have a patient on a beta blocker plus a calcium channel blocker plus you're using now digoxin. Triple blocking a patient puts a patient really at high risk of having complete heart block, especially in the elderly. So just be careful. Loading doses of DIG do not necessarily have to be altered because of renal dysfunction, which I think is a common misconception, unless their creatinine clearance is like less than 15%, or less, sorry, less than 15. But the maintenance dose, that being said, that has to be, it's renally cleared, has to be dosed appropriately for the kidneys. Patients with a bypass tract like WPW presenting as AFib should not be given a nodal blocking agent because this will preferentially send the AFib down that bypass tract and actually precipitate VFib. So if you're dealing with this, call cardiology. <laughs> you can try to terminate stable SVTs with vagal maneuvers. I'm not sure of how many of you tried to instruct a patient on how to do a vagal maneuver, but it can be difficult to describe when you're in the, in the moment. Most people tell patients, pretend you're having a bowel movement, but patients don't always get this and they do some weird things. So one trip, trick that I found really helpful is to give them an empty clean syringe and have them blow on it with pursed lips and that helps them do that without doing weird things. Um, adenosine is also a great way to parse out what you're seeing because it'll block uh, like the AV node and allow you to see the atrial activity. So when giving adenosine, make sure you have a good IV site, preferentially above the peripheral uh, antecubital fossa because you need it to be more central. Um, you want to have pads in place. And again, help. Don't do this by yourself. Push six milligrams first and quickly flush. Sometimes you have to raise their arm above the head to really get that down because it's so short acting. And you can repeat with 12 milligrams. For AFib, flutter, sinus tack, and atrial tack, this will show what exactly is going on, but it won't terminate the arrhythmia because the node is not part of the circuit. Adenosine will help terminate AVRT or more likely AVNRT because the AV node is part of the circuit. All right, thank you so much for that, Erica. It's, it's always really important to know when to use what, but more importantly, when not to use what. Um, and I guess that naturally leads on to the next segment. When is it time for us to call our friendly neighborhood cardiology fellow? So that's, that's a really good question. You should consider cardiology consult anytime you're not sure. We do not bite. That being said, it's always really nice when you have a good story and a strip to help the consultant. So having that information can give you a gold star. Also, call us if their medications aren't controlling symptoms. You know the patient is a high-risk hobby or occupation. Or anytime there is some structural heart disease, syncope, a wide QRS, or pre-excitation, really those are the patients that we definitely need to see. Thank you so much for your time, Erica. Tachyarrhythmias are daunting to manage, but with strong understanding of the why and how, we'll be better equipped to assess and stabilize the patient until you get there, if needed. And that's all we have for you guys. Stay curious, and until next time.